But before I read those verses, let me pray, and then I'll read them. Our Heavenly Father, the Bible passage we're looking at tonight will be very familiar. And the very familiar can be very comfortable. And so we'd ask you that you would even make us uncomfortable because uh, it is so easy to pretend and deceive ourselves. And so we pray that you will help us to be honest, humble, but then loving Jesus for the security that he gives us, that in the worst days you work to fulfill your promises. Even when a nation is weeping, you fulfill your plan. Help us to grow confidence in you tonight as we see that these things are true. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be reading Matthew chapter 2 and verses 13 to the end. Now when they had departed, that is after the wise men, the Magi had departed, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region, who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise man. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah, Judea in place of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. I'll stop there. The children are going to go to their groups, and I wonder if uh, someone could be kind and distribute the pieces of paper that are on the piano so that everybody has a a sheet.
Uh, the kids have gone and uh, here we are left on our own. We're not quite on our own, are we? A uh, good number. Let's um, go back to that little passage and try and understand what that old story can teach us in London today. And let's uh, say that there are advantages of uh, having this Christmas story read in September. Because when you get away from Christmas, you get to see things differently. And last week we saw that the wise men that people talk about at Christmas were actually pagan outsiders. Okay? Uh, as far as God was concerned, they were absolutely on the outside. And they're visiting Jerusalem, which is a place of the insiders, where the Jews live, the capital city. But what we discovered last week was a big surprise, is that the outsiders actually became the insiders and actually met up with God's Son, whereas the insiders were actually on the outside. And it's interesting, isn't it, how that can be the case. That uh, the God of the Bible uses outsiders to tell the insiders how to get in because the insiders are actually on the outside. In every church, in this one included, there will be people who are insiders actually on the outside. And there will be outsiders coming into the kingdom to show us how we need to step in the way they do. So, that was a big shock from last week, that the insiders were outsiders and, and the outsiders came in. But this week, we're looking at Christmas again in September, and again we're going to be shocked. Because we're going to realise that this is the season, season where we have tidings of great sadness. That's what we're looking at today. At Christmas time is funny, is it? We expect everybody to love Jesus. And in fact, actually, his name is at the very beginning of the season, Christmas. But in September, detached from the cards and the present, we see the king who hated Christmas. And Herod is here with us tonight in this story to teach us three things. How phony belief or faith leads to furious unbelief and he fulfills prophecy. Phony faith leads to furious unbelief and then prophecy is fulfilled. So let's go first to phony faith. And I don't know if you've been to the kids, uh, with the kids to the, the Christmas panto. Uh, there's usually one in Hornchurch. And uh, what happens in every panto is everybody knows where the baddie is. And as soon as the baddie comes, the kids point and they say, is behind you. Because they all know who the baddie is. And every time the baddie comes, they immediately are on to him. And I guess because we've been through many Christmases, uh, Herod can be a bit like that, can't we? We know he's the Christmas baddie in the panto. But look, just for once, give Herod a clean sheet of paper and let Matthew write on it to tell us about King Herod. And when Matthew starts writing, he tells us in verse 8 that Herod wants to worship Jesus. 
He is very positive about Jesus. In fact, at this point of the story, you think that there's very little difference between the Magi on the one hand and Herod on the other. It's like Herod saying, look, if only I wasn't so busy, I've got my diary full of things. If it wasn't for that, I'd be coming with you to worship him as well. Now, it's phony. There are hints that it's phony if you look at verse 3, because he's troubled when he hears that Jesus has been born. But, well, at this point he comes across as a believer, doesn't he? He wants to worship Jesus. He's got phony faith. And that quickly turns into furious unbelief. And the mood change happens in verse 16 when he finds out he's been tricked. That's when the mask slips and he is furious and he kills every baby and toddler in Bethlehem. Now, lots of people say, you know, none of this is true. It didn't happen. None of the other history books tell us that this massacre took place. So how can we trust this? That it really did um, happen as it says? But what the other history books will tell you is that Herod, towards the end of his reign, caused so much bloodshed that it's easy to understand why this little incident went unreported. I mean, Herod killed his three children, or three, three of his sons, and his wife. And so therefore he was a guy who was a psycho. He just got everybody killed that got in his way. Whereas in Bethlehem, there would only probably have been less than 20 children who were toddlers or younger, and therefore that doesn't uh, make the reports. It's small fry compared to what else he got up to and did. As I say, this man was a psycho, and reading about psychos isn't fun, which is why when you go to a church at Christmas time, the reading will normally stop at about verse 12, where the Magi turned up and they give their gifts, it's a happy ending. But you look at verses 13 to 23, and it's getting pretty dark. And this is where it just, uh, uh, it normally gets airbrushed out. This is the dark side of Christmas. Look, uh, just imagine uh, the soldiers coming in through that door and grabbing Eddie and butchering him in front of all of us. I mean, we would be traumatised, wouldn't we? And there are lots of pictures that try and help us to understand. There's uh, an unarmed mother against a fully weaponized soldier coming to kill. And at that point, the horror of it begins to, to come home. Uh, that's why it says how Rachel, who is the kind of uh, mother of Israel, she's seen to be uh, the person who uh, has, uh, uh, as it were, children descending from her, and she can't stop crying because everybody is affected by a tragedy like this. So you've got to ask, why did uh, Herod hate 
Jesus so much? And the answer is, turn back to verse 1. And tell me the title given to Herod in verse 1. Can anyone spot it? Herod's the king. Herod's the king, okay. Now look at the title given to Jesus in verse 2. What is it? King of the Jews. The same title. And that's why we now have a clash. Because if Jesus is the new king, the old king needs to move over. Does Herod? And the new king has come, but the old king won't go. I like the illustration someone used to tell the story of a group of tourists going through Buckingham Palace, and they've been shown all the treasures, but the kids are getting bored, and they're fed up with seeing ancient paintings and old furniture, but their eyes light up when they go into the throne room, and everything is so magnificently grand, and the wonderful throne is there for them to look at. And the big moment comes when, when the rest of the tour party goes into another room, and one kid gets under the rope and goes and sits on the throne and imagines giving orders to everybody. And just then, the queen and her courtiers and her entourage and her dignitaries all walk into the throne room and the child is asked to get off the throne and the child refuses. Now you've got a little bit of a flavour of what's going on here. There's a king clash, which is what is uh, making this happen. So, phony belief turns into furious unbelief when there's a king clash. When Jesus is not allowed to be king. And it's worth pointing out that Herod is not alone. Because in Jerusalem, you see that... Uh, all Jerusalem, sorry, verse 3, you see that all Jerusalem is troubled with him. So there's lots of other little uh, uh, crowds that feel threatened at the same time. All of us can say that we want to worship Jesus until the king clash happens. At that moment, we get very angry with what, whoever it is is telling us what God says, because really, we don't like what God says. There's a king clash going on. And at that point, phony belief becomes furious unbelief. But in that moment, you start seeing God in the story fulfilling prophecy. And you might just think, okay, so if we're going from phony belief to furious unbelief, what's going to happen next in the bad disaster road? And the answer is nothing bad, only good. Because here's the good news. Most, uh, Matthew wants to tell us again and again that God has written a script for all that's happening. This is the big message that you get from Matthew chapter 2. It's all going to plan. Now, we might look at this story and we might look at the kind of last minute warnings and dreams, the late night escapes, and we might think the big message is, yes, there is a king with 
life and death in his hands, but it so happens that God always wins and comes out on top. You know, it's a bit like the God's a bit like the clever footballer. He sees the tackle coming and he sidesteps, starts the way just in time, and he manages to keep going forward. Now, Matthew would be really disappointed if you thought like that. Because Matthew's got something bigger to tell us. That's why he keeps on telling us that prophecy is being fulfilled. Because Matthew wants us to know that this is not a story about near misses. You know, Joseph just about gets out the back door as the soldiers come in the front door. It's not like that. Sounds a bit like that. But it's just a narrow, a lucky escape. Yeah, a bit like the, the landmine in the road. And just in the nick of time, the soldiers spot there's something slightly uh, different about that bit of the road. And they walk on the other side and uh, the landmine uh, land is quite safe. And so Herod, yeah, he plans bad. But as far as this child is concerned, it doesn't come to anything. But that's not what Matthew is telling us. He's telling us, no, no, seriously, the landmine explodes and people are killed. And Rachel, who's the mother of Israel, as I said, can't stop crying. But this explosion is not to be avoided. It is part of God's big plan. Because the God of the Bible is not just reactive. People do things and then God takes evasive action at the last minute. No, the dreams might lead us to think that but what prophecy tells us is this is not last minute escape because of a dream this is a thousand year plan that's going on and the explosion is absolutely necessary to the thousand year plan because actually it will blow up the enemy as well and the thousand year plan is that God will do with Jesus what he did with his people in the Old Testament. So we're not just simply looking at the thing and saying, phew, that narrow escape. No, God is actually working out a bigger plan to do with Jesus what he did with his old people in the old part of the Bible. And if you know the story from the old part of the Bible, you know that God's people were slaves in Egypt. And they come out of Egypt and they go to Israel. And now here's Jesus. And uh, he is the one who's going to be walking in the steps of Israel. Israel, the nation of Israel, used to be called God's son. Trouble is that this particular son, he kept on disobeying. And the old nation of Israel failed again and again and again. But Matthew wants to tell us that whereas old Israel were meant to be God's faithful son who would bring the nations to himself, well, they didn't do that. They were worse than the nations that they were meant to win. But Matthew wants to tell us that Jesus is God's faithful son. And unlike them, he walks the same tracks only he is faithful every step of the way. And his journey starts in Egypt. You've got it on the notes in Hosea chapter 11, verse 10. 
Out of Israel, out of Egypt I call my son. Now, you might have thought that was referring to the old nation of Israel being called God's son. Hosea says, no, no. He always had Jesus in mind. Out of Egypt, God is calling his son. And unlike Israel, he is walking faithfully in their tracks all the way. And so Jesus starts the journey in Egypt. And if you come back uh, in a couple of weeks, you see we're in chapter 3, and you see that where Jesus is in the wilderness being tested. In the Old Testament part of the Bible, when the people of Israel were going through the desert, they wouldn't trust God when they didn't have food. And now Jesus, the true Israelite, is going to be in the wilderness and he will be tested and he will trust God the way that old Israel didn't. So he's the true Israelite who will, or the true Israel, who will help the nations come to God. And evil Herod is the person God uses to get Jesus to Egypt after he's given the family all the treasures that they need in gold, frankincense and myrrh to pay for their expenses on that trip. And so now that promise that God would call his son from Egypt in verse 15 is being fulfilled. And yes, the killing of the babies, well, that fulfills the promise too, because Jeremiah in chapter 31 said that uh, Herod would cause tears. But it's also a party chapter, Jeremiah 31, because in verses uh, 31 uh, onwards, you see it's uh, a time when the tears will stop, when comfort will be applied. And one day, this Jesus will stop the tears caused by the Herods the world over that makes mothers weep. And here's the person who's come to stop the tears. And the third prophecy being fulfilled is that he would end up living in Nazareth. Now, there's no direct prophecy that tells you that Jesus was going to live in Nazareth. But actually, there is a lot in the Old Testament that tells you that uh, he would be rejected. And Nazareth was the place where the rejects come from. So you remember that Nathaniel asked, does anything good come out of Nazareth? In that uh, reference I gave you. And remember later, they insulted Christians when they spoke to Paul. And they said, oh, you're just leading a sect of the Nazarenes. It was a, a way of insulting and putting down people. Well, that was basically what uh, was going on. If Jesus had been born in Bethlehem and known to have come from Bethlehem, he might have had some royal respect. Because that's where the city of Kingswood happened to be. But Jesus of Nazareth... That's a title that they normally gave him when they wanted to insult him. And the Old Testament says that he would be rejected. And Nazareth is a way of introducing us to that theme. So, 
phony belief leads to furious unbelief, but it leads to fulfilled prophecy. And I want to think what we might learn tonight and take home tonight as a result of learning those things. I want to suggest that there are maybe three groups of people that could be helped. It may be that you're someone who's very new to Christian things and you may not even call yourself a Christian. Well, wouldn't it be good for Matthew to give you some insight into why you are not a Christian? See, we can think that we're not a Christian because we didn't grow up in religious circles. We're not a Christian because we're busy and we haven't got the time. We're not a Christian because where we like to see the good in all religions and we don't want to choose one of them. But Matthew tells us the real reason you're not a Christian is because there is a king clash. Jesus is God's king and I don't like the clash when what I want to do clashes with what he wants me to do. And that's when I want to reject him. I remember when I was a new Christian and I was going out with a non-Christian girl and I had to decide whether I would let Jesus be the king in that area and to follow what he said in the Bible or would I run that relationship the way I wanted to run it. It was a clash and I realised that the relationship would need to end and that I had to climb off the throne. And my friends, if you are someone who's seriously thinking about following Jesus, work out where the king clash would be for you and realise the wise thing is to get off the throne. Okay? That's uh, perhaps a helpful thing if you're not uh, yet a Christian and it's all near. What happens if you're used to church and you come maybe here quite a lot or other churches as well? But doesn't it show us that actually you might be a little bit more like Herod than you like to think? It's easy, isn't it, to project an image, especially if you're in church, that you want to worship Jesus. But when there's a king clash, you realise the words in church are just words. I say I want to worship him, but when it comes to worshipping with his people, if I have an option to work on Sunday, then maybe I want to do that. The king clash is, yes, I want to worship, but no, I think I want to be king. And lots of people sing, oh, come, let us adore him at Christmas. And they don't mean it just proves that you get Herod's in church because that's exactly what he said. Or if you're a real believer, well, it's easy, isn't it, to get discouraged when the dark days come and you can look at church attendance and you can say, God's had his day. Why vote for Jesus when all the opinion polls are going the other way? It's uncool to be Christian. And Matthew's answer is that even though there's rejection everywhere, that God is achieving his great plans through the rejection. 
That's a new way to think, isn't it? It's very easy to think that God kind of somehow managed to work it despite the rejection. No, God works his plans even through the rejection. We'd read this story and say, it'd be brilliant if Jesus went from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. place where the kings were born to the place where the kings reigned. But instead he goes from Egypt to Nazareth. Because it's through the rejection that he finally gets to Jerusalem to die on a cross where he is rejected and where in the end it's the place where God's plan is achieved through that rejection. And so we need to start thinking in a new way that it is rejection that leads to God's plans being fulfilled. Sounds Irish to say that. Forgive me if you're Irish. But it is actually how the Bible works. Your worst day could be the day that God does his greatest work. And it's very interesting that uh, we went uh, visiting this afternoon and we met a lady uh, and she had just a year after year after year of really bad news and heartbreak. And I said to her, you know, it's because of that that we are having this conversation now about more serious things. And we're talking about God and how he might be loving you through all this. Whereas if everything had gone hunky-dory, then we wouldn't be having this conversation, would we? Because you'd be so busy doing other things. So let's stop there and privately speak perhaps to God about what we've heard. And I guess the honest thing you might want to think through with him while you're talking is where is the king clash going on in your life? And ask his help to resolve that. Okay? So one minute of uh, quiet prayer, and then I'll pray. Just have that minute first. I keep praying as we let these words sink in, but let me pray for us all before we have some questions. And Look at some answers. Our Father, we do want to thank you for speaking to us through Matthew. Please would you strengthen us to live for Jesus as our King, especially when our desires clash with his will. And would you please keep us confident that you achieve your purposes in the day of evil, not despite the evil, but even because of it. So even in our tears, keep us joyful, give us hope, and keep us living for the glory of your name, because you are our King.